Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership podcast. I'm delighted to have a friend of mine who I've known for some years. I respect him as probably one of the top uh, experts in the people and HR business. And uh, it's been a joy knowing him, speaking uh, at one of his big conferences, and we've stayed in touch. So without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Hello, uh, Jonathan. Thank you for the opportunity to participate. Uh, um, I'm Rashid Ben Gugan. People call me Ben, so that's how I'm known by all and sundry, my family, my workmates, and uh, and everyone who knows me. Uh, I am the senior vice president of human resources for Hilton Europe, Middle East, Africa. It's a region of uh, that operates in seventy countries, twelve of our nineteen brands, uh, and employs around sixty thousand people. Big challenges around employing uh, everyone from frontline team members doing a very hard job of cleaning rooms, serving customers, preparing breakfast, day in, day out for a fairly small salary and delivering outstanding hospitality. So you know, if, I, if I was to explain the challenge of my job in one sentence, I would use that, 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 that uh, description. Uh, we, we are a very successful organization. We are uh, blessed with having a a world-class award-winning culture, which in an organization that employs nearly 400,000 people around the world, 350,000 of whom are frontline team members, uh, I hope your listeners will agree is, is a great achievement for which I take very little credit. You know, uh, this is a Hilton leadership, chief inspiring chief executive, very focused on driving uh, our culture through values, through a sense of aspirational uh, mission and vision and, and through very strong, very, very strong uh, sense of purpose. So that's what I'm doing, the best job in my life. As I approach the twilight of my career, I'm absolutely blessed to be working for Hilton. And I mean that from my heart. Yeah, well, uh, that is the thing I've learned about you. You're very, generally very authentic and you know you speak as, as you mean. And you also lead by example, which is something you and I were talking about so important, whether it be when people... I think you were talking as we were discussing about just how tough for the hospitality, as many as industries, but certainly for the hospitality industry, the um, the whole COVID period has been, both when it first hit throughout the period, but then when it, it came to a comparative ending and you had to ramp up because everybody wanted to, to go on holiday or just have that release valve from being pent up. Do you want to just speak about that for a couple of moments? Because that was a really big chance for any industry but yours particularly yes i think the whole of the hospitality industry was affected by covid um, as much as if not more than most industries we went from having a very successful 2019 to suddenly the majority of our hotels being closed so zero customers zero revenues and trying to, to look after team members who uh, potentially would lose their job in countries where you had government support, most of the Western European countries, including the UK, offered furlough relief or, or 
for payroll relief, but in many countries there was no such support and so Hilton had to step in to try and help our team members and we had to make redundancies. We lost something like 35% of our team members through, through I mean lost through job loss, not, uh, not through COVID. Uh, during COVID, and and, and it, it was for many businesses in the in the industry uh, a true existential crisis, and many smaller businesses, you know, lost their business essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the back of that, as we started towards the end of 2020, and, and as we started 2021, there was a, a huge ramp up, an almost immediate ramp up. So we went from almost zero to potentially being able to achieve 100% occupancy in many of our hotels and a huge challenge around around staffing, finding enough team members to deliver the basics of hospitality to to our customers. And it was sort of an interesting inverted theorem whereby, you know, some hotels initially would have have said, well, I can't take all the business that I could, Uh, you know, I, I have to cap occupancy because I don't have enough staff to clean rooms, for example. And the HR challenge there was to very quickly quickly to find solutions for uh, temporary stuff to support our very high volumes of business. Um, mm-hmm. And we're having uh, an excellent 2022, you know, uh, approaching 2019 sort of levels, uh, and in some countries exceeding those levels. And it's been a very, very challenging year. I say to my team who, you know, uh, complain about workload and, 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 and what have you, that we have to agree it's a better challenge to try and uh, deal with these high uh, business levels and the associated HR challenge, then it was dealing with the the, uh, horror of COVID and the impact on our team members then. And they all agree, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And and this is when I think we need more inspired leadership than ever, when you're taking on new staff who perhaps weren't in the industry to ramp up uh, perhaps even like uh, the uh, Hilton Hotel on the Palm Jumeirah, which I'm looking forward to going to with my two daughters for for uh, three or four nights in uh, February. Um, opening up a new hotel or staffing an existing hotel to, to get people up to speed with the way things are done around here. Whereas before the pandemic, people might have stayed and worked in a hotel for many years. But now uh, I imagine a lot of your people are brand new with maybe only a year's service or less. Is that the case? Yes, I mean, it, it is the case in many of the countries in which we operate. But, but the good thing is that the industry has always had a culture of training team members. You know, we've always uh, recruited people with either zero skill. In some countries, we, we recruit people with, uh, with no literacy and numeracy skills at all. So we have to train people not only in the job, but in terms of education and life skills to be able to uh, perform perform their jobs. So we had the structure to be able to welcome team members and go through a, a well-honed training program. Uh, it was just a matter of trying to do it quickly and get people sort of ramped up to be able to do the job quickly. It, it, was, a, it was a big challenge, but I think we, we raised well to that challenge. The yeah. other interesting aspect of that, uh, Jonathan, is, is uh, you know, very quickly as the business ramped up, as you know, the, the hospitality industry, much like the airline travel industry in general, operates uh, an, a, a commercial environment of dynamic pricing. You know, the, business, the busier you are, the higher your rates and the higher your customer expectation becomes. So it wasn't just getting any staff to do any job. 
it was to deliver great customer experience. Um, and I think we raised well to that challenge. We, we, we're very happy with our customer service results in relation to uh, 2019 and where we started the year. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a really, I find the whole, the whole hospitality industry fascinating uh, and, and particularly um, staying at sort of lovely hotels like the Conrad, which we mentioned in, in Portugal, which I, I thought was, was exceptional. We had a lovely time there. Um, or, or various different places that Lee and I have uh, treated ourselves to stay at, that that you have to have staff who really love looking after the customers and and that they you just sense that they really enjoy it. And uh, that's where I think the inspired leadership comes in because the managers at all levels have to inspire that that sense of customer focus and excellence which i think you and i talked about horst schultz uh, who i hope to have on the podcast uh, later next year uh, with his book uh, excellence wins this idea of excellence and high standards is fascinating what for you does inspiring leadership mean ben in the way you've experienced it and do, would you perhaps mention some of the other places that you've worked as well as you've done many years here at the hilton um but but where else have you you learned about inspiring leadership well, uh, you know, I've had a I've had a very long career so far, so I've seen kind of uh, you know the good, the bad, and the uh, and the and the excellent, uh, and I've learned from all of these experiences. To me, I mean, inspired leadership at the basic level, I think, is about treating people well, treating people with respect, treating people. Some would say as you would prefer to be treated, but I heard one of your podcast participants recently say something even more inspiring, which was that you, you know, she had moved from treating people in her philosophy was to treat people in the way she preferred to be treated, but she now thinks about treating people in the way they want to be treated. I find that, you know, despite my long experience, quite, you know, uh, mind-blowing as a sort of extension of my own belief. Um, and I'll certainly think about what that means and, and, and try to kind of uh, lead in that way a little bit more. I might have done some of that anyway intuitively, but I think focusing on that is probably going to be my next learning journey, I guess, as a leader. Mm. And, and respect is a very big part of the, the, the Hilton approach, but also your own philosophy. Um, I was lucky to go on a program at Harvard, um, uh, gosh, now about five years ago. And um, I was very lucky to be taught by Professor Donna Hicks, who wrote a book about dignity. And, and the violation of dignity and the, the, the 10 components that lead to treating people with dignity. And her point was very interesting that respect people feel has to be earned or could be lost or respect for somebody. But dignity is a fundamental birthright that you everybody is born with the, the right to be treated with dignity. And, and this is where shame comes in later on when they are not or they, uh, they've had bad family experiences. So I think that's an interesting segue into, I always like to hear from leaders like you on your life journey. What all that experience you've had over a long career, uh, as you say, the good, bad, and the, uh, the excellent. Um, what was the upbringing? You know, where did you grow up? Um, parents, you know, what were their values? Were they gentle and kind? Were they tough on you? And, and how has that shaped you as the leader you are today? with all the experience you now hold uh, and the mentoring and the coaching you do yourself, I know. Well, I, I think I, I was I was brought up, I was born in, in Paris, France. Um, and when I was seven, we, my father was Algerian, my mother was French. 
And when I was seven years old, we moved to Algeria. <clears throat> and so I was very early on exposed to, to racism and bigotry, for example. You know, I never really, you know, in France, I was the Algerian, the Arab, and, and in Algeria, I was the Frenchman, you know. So there was this notion of not truly belonging to, to our, either country that I had to grapple with. My parents were very hardworking, my, both of them. Uh, my father was an extremely tough disciplinarian uh, with whom I had a, a pretty difficult and challenging uh, relationship. And, and my mother was a wonderful role model and, and she was kind of the opposite. You know, she was the nurturing, supportive, uh, uh, full of love kind of parent. And, and I guess, you know, those two things have probably shaped me as a, not, not only as a leader, but, as, but certainly as a human being in, in the one sense of, not wanting to be one of the drives in terms of my own behavior as a, as a person, as a parent, as a husband, as a leader then in business was to try not to be like my father and to be more like my mother, I guess. You know, I don't quite know what that means in terms of behavior every day, but if I reflect on some of my behaviors, some being positive and occasionally negative, I kind of sort of, uh, you know, think of my father and think of my mother those times. Uh, the, the good thing, though, I, I was very lucky to, when I got to 18 years old and I wanted to leave Algeria to be sponsored, to study uh, outside of Algeria, uh, sponsored by the Algerian oil company, and I went to study engineering in, in, uh, in the UK. I was very lucky in, in being sent to the UK because I then found a country where uh, I wasn't, you know, the Frenchman or the, or the Arab, or, you know, I was just... Just a foreigner in the country but i was welcome i never to this day and i've on and off lived in the uk for over 40 years never never have i experienced uh racism or discrimination of any sort you know which says a lot i guess for the uk i mean i'm sure i would have had a similar experience in many countries but i was lucky to have had that experience in the uk and, and i'm very grateful for that and i took british citizenship so i'm not british i even supported the the uh, the uh, England team, you know, when they play when they play France at rugby or, or football, and supporting them, you know, and people sort of challenge me and say, well, how can you do that? You know, you're born in France, and <laughs> I can do that because I feel more British than I do anything else. Yeah, that's that's a lovely touch, and I I'm so pleased to hear about sad to hear about the tough experiences early on and the racism and being neither one nor the other. That sense of identity and belonging, which is so important to us. Um, but also so pleased to hear that in England you found a place where I, I do find it very multicultural and people of many backgrounds and many walks of life. And that was what was so nice for me when I was a, a cadet at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst is that we had a large slice of our 30 of the platoon, perhaps 20 were or more were from the UK but 10 or so were from different countries around the world. I've got friends from Jordan, from Nepal, from Barbados, from Jamaica. Um, and um, they were really very special people who've remained friends of mine for goodness knows, some 42 years now. Um, and, and that meeting people from different backgrounds, I think really, really helps us. Thinking of your, of your life and all that went on, Ben, um, what is your um, a moment you'd think of your happiest and proudest moment and what did you learn from that? And then what is a moment that was a dark time for you, both personally or uh, at work or a combination of the two? And, and what did you learn from that tougher times? Do share. I, I think, you know, hands down, 
the happiest time I've ever experienced was the birth of my first child, you know, when my daughter Nadia was born. First, instead of the notion of suddenly becoming a father and having the this enormous unconditional love towards this tiny little baby and almost immediately a, a huge sense of responsibility, you know, for kind of forever, you know, an infinite sense of responsibility that you brought some uh, some little person into the world with whom you're going to have a relationship and until hopefully the days you go, not they go, you know. Uh, and so that was the happiest moment in my life. I've had many happy moments, of course, but, but you know, if you were to, to ask me which, which was your happiest moment, that would be, that would be. I think my, my darkest moment, I've, I've had a few, certainly professionally was the only time um, I lost my job in the middle of a recession, which was in 2007. Uh, and the, the degree of difficulty, you know, in tough sort of financial circumstances, uh, securing further employment, you know, that was probably darkest, most difficult time. And I have a, an extremely heightened sense of responsibility towards providing for my family. And I felt for a, not, not that long a time, but for a period of time, I felt powerless to do something about it because nobody was employing anyone, certainly not anyone at the level at which I was looking for jobs. And it took me a little while to fall back on my feet. That, that, that was my darkest moment. Mm, well, I'm, I'm sorry that you, you had to go through that. And I, I do think that having, particularly in your role as the, uh, the Senior Vice President for Human Resources and People Issues, having had that experience, I know that you'd be particularly sensitive to when you have to make people redundant, but you still have to do it. And, and I was very lucky to work with uh, a partner at PwC, Roger Wynne-Jones, who I respect an awful lot and I hope Roger's listening now he's become a leadership coach him, himself um, we both took that journey but but Roger said to me that, that one of his toughest times was I think he had to lay off something like about 200 people um, and many of them he'd recruited in the previous years and and it was just really tough but you have to face into it and you have to deal with it and so those those are those kind of courageous conversations that you have but but then having that empathy to understand what it's like when others are going through it and through our own networks to help people when we can. And I, over the years, helped a number of people who made job changes or suddenly found themselves in a bad situation um, uh, that, that you can at least connect them with your, with your own network. Um, thinking about as you've grown up and you now have uh, four stepchildren, three children of your own and two grandchildren. So we were comparing notes of our grandchildren and children and stepchildren. Um, you'll have seen them go through that stage of 16 to 18. And if you go back to when you were 16 to 18 and you could meet the young Ben, what bit of advice would you give yourself? Don't worry about this. And this really does matter. What, what would you do in your DeLorean car when you went back to the future and met yourself? Yes. Um, well, I, I think, you know, if I have one tiny regret and it's, it's not a big one because you know, I'm fairly uh, uh, happy and satisfied with the life I've led. It is that I, I, I spent most of my 20s doing nothing. You know, I was working, but I wasn't, I didn't have a, a life plan. I didn't have a goal. I was just working to pay the bills and have a bit of fun and didn't have a sense of trying to organize my life and have a career until my late 20s. So I would say, you know, when I was 21, I would have said to myself, get on with it, you know, have a plan, decide what you're going to do with your life and be 
uh, intentional about trying to achieve uh, those objectives that you set for yourself. That's the, the kind of the small regret I have. Mm. And, and the other one I would say is probably start thinking about becoming a leader because I've always wanted to lead uh, from a young age. And I led, you know, in sports team and various events in my youth while at uh, school and high school and, and the beginning of my university life here in the UK. So, you know, I was a slow starter on the career ladder, I guess. That would be my biggest regret. Mm, yeah, it, it is a very interesting one. And thinking back on my own life, um, sort of pushed um, within myself to try and prove uh, a teacher that I wasn't thick and uh, others at boarding school that I wasn't worthless. So it sort of drove me on to try and achieve things almost at an extreme level the other way around in my 20s. But uh, as I talk to people now and coach them, there's a fine balance between if you had a, a, the X and Y axis of your challenges versus your abilities. And the 45 degree line is where your abilities match your challenges. Below it, you're not really stretched because your abilities are well within the capability of any challenge you're thrown. But above it is the place of, of fear and the unknown and where you could fail. But also it's where a lot of growth happens. I, I always sort of held this idea of you ought to live above the 45. It was almost a paradox, living above the 45, being challenged. But then in, in a coaching session yesterday, actually, someone said, actually, in some ways, I've really strived and achieved so much, but at the cost to my family. So I've been going for my career, but I haven't been much of a father. I haven't been around for them or even a husband. And so I want to actually be on the 45 now. So I can, if I have any spare capacity, it's to, to, to be a good role model to my family, to support my wife with her career and all that goes on. And I thought that was a, it's, it's a profound one, really. Getting that balance between achieving a lot, but getting that, that whole, that, that holistic bit. And this is why we use the eight components, which we're going to talk about in a moment of, of, uh, of what makes an inspiring leader, what makes high perform. If you have bits missing, you're a disintegrated inspiring leader. Or if you have all of the pieces covered, you are a truly integrated, inspiring leader. I don't know what you feel about people that you've helped, because you've helped many people over the years, where they, they get that balance wrong. And they're so workaholic that other parts of their life fall apart, or eventually their marriage or their life collapses around them or their mental health does. Any, any thoughts that come up for you, Ben? Well, I mean, I've met many people, of course, that uh, that fit the description you've just given, Jonathan, and and uh, and, and I, I could even say that I probably was one of those, you know, because I started late, I became extremely ambitious and, and frustrated at, you know, the, the speed at which I was progressing, and 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 I made those kinds of sacrifices, you know, I, I got a job traveling the world as a as a training executive for a, a hotel company, which meant I was away from my young children and. I look back on that period of my life i don't look back at it with a lot of pride you know i look at i look back at it with quite a lot of regret okay my kids are fine now and they do very well and so on but these are times with your family that you can't get back you know uh, see them see them grow up and, and see experiences that they've had that you haven't shared you know that are a source of uh, of great regret and i i agree with you on the notion of disintegration if you operate all the time above the 45 line mm. because it's impossible to achieve all you might want to achieve i think from a business perspective without some trade-offs yeah, yeah. No, i think it's very 
Very true. And, and if you were to look at um, the sort of crucible moments, Jan Carlson in uh, SAS Airlines, who was a very inspiring uh, MBA case study when I did my MBA, um, and Lee, my wife, worked in S Scandinavian Airlines and said he was a truly inspiring leader. But he talked about there's these defining crucible moments that you have in your life where something goes wrong or something big happens that shapes your life. Was there for you a crucible moment that you look back on and a lot of things changed because of that, even though it was tough at the time, it, it maybe taught you a lot? I think the crucible moment for me was when I started my career in HR, not by design, but because someone tapped me on the shoulder and said to me, you've been working in hotels for a while now. By that time, I was operating at the general manager level in a hotel. You speak a few languages, you understand the business. We want you to become a trainer so you could train other general managers and other managers in hotels. And I had never thought about that kind of a career for myself. I thought one day I'm going to be managing the Savoy or the Claridge's, you know, one of those great London hotels. That was kind of my objective at that time. But I accepted to take that challenge uh, and never really looked back. And, and as a result, uh, um, you know, benefited from, uh, from a, a great HR career in different industries all around the world. Uh, and I think that was my defining moment. But I had nothing to do with it, in essence, you know, because I had never thought about it until that person sort of tapped me on the shoulder. And yeah. I, and I, I'm entirely and eternally grateful to him for, for having done that for me, you know, so that's, that's my defining career moment. Yeah, thank you. That is, I love that story. And uh, sometimes, you know, keep keep your mind open for the opportunities that, you know, if one door closes, another one might open. And uh, yes, those those sliding doors moments where did you take did you take that decision? And when the, the, the doors of the, uh, the tube closed or did you step in and it changed everything? I think that's very interesting. Let's I use that uh, quite regularly when I, when I go to universities and hotel schools to talk to young students about, uh, you know, how you manage your career and how you uh, make decisions about the steps in your career. I always say, you know, there's sort of two dynamics here. One is work ethic, because in this industry, you can't really get away with not being uh, hardworking. And I'm not suggesting you make the sacrifices that others have made, but you have to be fairly hardworking. And the other is to take your opportunities as they arise, even if you, even if they come your way and you hadn't thought about exploring that particular avenue. I encourage them to do that, particularly early in their career. Yeah, I, I, it's so true. And, and I was very lucky in my 20 years in the army that every two years or maybe even 18 months you change roles quite different you know one time you're on the front line in a combat role and then you're in a headquarters or uh, as I was assistant to the head of the British army and and you get these different experiences and I was forever looking for the next opportunity whatever came up whether it was jumping out of airplanes and I was scared of heights or whatever I'd have a go at them uh, and throw myself into them and and as a result it's given me a very rich life of many experiences and a lot of blunders that I've made along the way. Uh, I wasn't suited to certain things. I still think I was very suited to being assistant to the head of the army. I I, uh, I should have got fired that, like the previous two guys did. But I think firing three ADCs in a row, aide-de-camp in a row, was was seen to, to be a fault of his rather than of the people he had working for him. So I think he just turned a blind eye to my incompetence. Um, moral quotient is the first of the eight components of what makes high-performing people and teams uh, in the work that Lee and I have done. When you look at your moral quotient, um, what have you found that, uh, I mean, in trust and integrity is so important in, the, in any industry, but I, I think it's particularly being trusted in the 
hospitality industry, you know, that someone's word is their bond and they say they're going to sort something out for a customer and they do that really, really matters. Um, what have you done when you let this area slip and how did you bring yourself back on back on true north really well I, I, I if i think about that question i'm trying to think of experiences i've had in in uh, in trying to redress a situation where we've had significant issues i mean generally speaking your example about uh, delivering to your word or to what you publish or what you market is absolutely critical you know so delivering brand standards in our world of hilton where we operate 19 brands or the delivering great customer experience when people are paying a, a high premium for, for staying with us is absolutely fundamental. And one of our values is, is integrity, and that applies to everything we do, from, from governance to being true to our words, to delivering great hospitality, to looking after our team members, and we take that extremely seriously. Um, I, I, I think it's the, the interesting sort of uh, sense of the equation is to look at it in the other way in thinking, if I lose the trust of my stakeholder, can I ever regain it? And the, the answer is often actually fundamentally, probably not, you know, it's very difficult. Um, it, it's very difficult to gain the trust and it's very easy to lose it and almost impossible to regain it, in my opinion. Mm. And so yeah. working hard on ensuring that we do deliver to our word is, is fundamental. Yeah, I think it's, it's very true and I look at uh, if I'm being raw about it, my my failed marriage, my first marriage. And I think um, when the trust broke down and it was partly my fault, uh, you're not really going to regain it. And uh, that's why I work so hard with my marriage to lead to make sure we have total trust between us. And so that that, there, that isn't something that people worry about. But I think in relationships, uh, in, in in business relationships, it is it is very important. The next one is PQ, meaning and purpose. Um, and, you know, uh, I think vocation, dharma, uh, sort of what gives your life uh, meaning. And, and I was thinking in the comment you made early um, of my old um, boss, Ge General now, the Lord Dannett, who was episode 200. And we were sitting in a wet wood waiting for helicopters to come and pick us up when we were in the air mobile role. It was a really exciting role. But as we were waiting there, he was the commanding officer and I was one of the company commanders, his, de his deputy at that time. But the closest I ever got to being the next level down to him when he became head of the army, I never got anywhere near him. But um, he said, John, what's your life plan? And I said, well, uh, Colonel, I don't, I don't have a life plan. He said, well, you must have a life plan because if you don't have a life plan, you'll end up part of somebody else's life plan. And guess what they've got planned for you? I said, I don't know. He said, not very much. So just a part of the cog in their life plan. So make sure you have yours. And, you know, as Eisenhower said, he said, you know, planning is essential, but but plans are useless. They'll constantly change, but you must have this process of planning. And, and I think that I'm very grateful to him for many things. He was a truly inspiring leader for me and a, a role model, sort of almost like a father figure to the missing father I never had from two and a half when he was killed that um, I think that's important. But for you, why do you do the work you do? Why the hospitality industry? And why the, the people side of it? What, what's your calling, Ben? Well, um, sort of probably a slightly difficult question to answer, but I, 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 would, I would say I, I started my career, I, I graduated as an engineer and never worked in the oil industry and then sort of fell into hospitality at the very bottom end 
And I did almost every job in a hotel that you could think of, you know, from cleaning rooms to serving food, to preparing food, to fixing the boiler occasionally, to, you know, delivering hospitality at the front office, uh, to the, you know, eventually becoming a, becoming a leader in that business. And then I left the hospitality industry and worked in technology that created the United States, then in retail, <coughs> excuse me, retail and e-commerce and back into retail, and finally back in hospitality with Hilton. <coughs> and, and the reason why I know working in hospitality is my calling is because my, I, I share the same experience you've had about uh, being in a second marriage, you know, and trying to sort of not make the same mistakes I made in the first one. But my wife, my wife tells me, or used to tell me all the time, all I could ever talk about before joining Hilton was working back in hospitality. You know, staying in hotels, I would bore her to death about stories of hotels and what was right and what wasn't right. And, and then eventually the Hilton offer came and, and, and it wasn't quite exactly what I wanted, you know, either financially or scope of work or whatever. And my wife said to me, you've got to take that job. You just have to take it. This is your calling. Um, and, and, and it's true. It is, it is absolutely, uh, hospitality is my calling. And, and, and then in the best job of all is trying to sort of uh, ensure that we have enough talent, that we develop that talent to be a sponsor of our culture, to, to as our founder, Conrad Hilton said, you know, to, to help spread the light and warmth of hospitality. And he felt that the hospitality and travel could truly change the world. And Hilton does its part in trying to do that. Yeah, it is. It is a lovely industry. I do. I do always get quite quite a buzz working with people in it and speaking to leaders in it and 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 experiencing, you know, visiting. I think I think my sort of perfect job in my later years would be to um, travel around the world, visiting different hotels and getting the experience of what it's like. And then at conferences, explaining about my experiences <laughs> And sharing the tips and techniques about good leadership and things like that. So um, if you're ever looking for someone as an ambassador for you, count me in. I'll be your man. Um, yeah. you'll, be the, you'll be the second candidate after me. Because <laughs> I, I bet. Yeah, you, you'd be perfect at it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Idyllic. Um, and, and in the life that you have, uh, health quotient is the third of the eight components we find so very interesting. It's not in many leadership models. And and Ben, you you know, you know thousands of leadership models you know everybody's been trying to push their particular model and i wouldn't say that uh, that ours is any better than any others i just find it, it it gets an interesting conversation going but having health quotient mental and physical health quotient as a key component was sort of okay about you know when we when we started this about 10 to 12 years ago people go okay yeah healthier but now everybody's going oh yes of course it must be a key component and mental health and things like that what what have you done in your role, uh, that so good couple of tips that you pass on to people. One on your physical health, how you how you now look after your physical health, and a, a second one on how you now, with experience, look after your mental health. Accepting that none of us are perfect practitioners. Yes, well, I think you know we were probably slightly enlightened in three four years ago. We started on this journey. Uh, we developed a program called Thrive at Hilton for our team members, a global program. We actually partnered with. Um, uh, Thrive Global, Ariana Huffington's sort of organization, in developing an approach that suggested to our team members that we were uh, absolutely focused and determined to support them on their journey to achieve balance between their body, mind, and spirit, and, and launched a number of programs around that. And then COVID happened, of course, which heightened 
not only the sort of phys physical health sort of imperative, but but actually thinking about our team members' mental health, everything that they went through, uh, not only through COVID, but anything they, they go through in their lives outside of work in particular, because we don't often have visibility of that and how we could support that. And we are very, very focused and very uh, intentional about having solutions for our team members, a broad range of solutions to address uh, all kinds of mental well-being issues and supporting them in their lives. You know, our principle is that we treat our team members as people first and foremost, and secondly, as team members. Uh, and, and we have a sort of an, uh, an execution around that, that that is driving some really interesting levels of engagement around the mental health issue, because mm -hmm. we're, we're sincere and we do something about it. You know, it's, it's lovely to hear. And that really from the, the health to the next one is emotional and social intelligence. So a key skill in hospitality where you've got to read your own emotions and how you exude a feeling. You're not, you cannot not communicate as someone once said, you're always communicating. So when you're in a grumpy mood, people will pick up what's, what's Ben's mood like or what's the manager's mood like or whatever it might be. And the word will spread around the staff. Oh, he's in a bad mood today. You know, keep clear of him or he's, you know, it's a good time to ask him for a pay rise or whatever it might be. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, that, that ability to know yourself, but then to read others and really reading whether it be customers or staff or whatever it is, and then to read the environment of what's going on in the world, in your industry. Um, what have you found has been tips that have served you well? Because you are somebody, I've always thought, uh, who has a good uh, development of emotional social intelligence. Maybe it was from your mother um, or wherever it might be. But what would be your tip to people who are trying to learn it? Clever people, but maybe high IQ, low EQ. Well, I always think, particularly if we see, uh, follow on from the previous topic on mental wellness, I, I, I always think there are two things that I do which uh, uh, bear, bear fairly regular dividends. You know, one is to talk about my own mental well-being with my team. If I have issues to sort of uh, show a degree of vulnerability. If I, you know, for this year, for example, I've had to deal with, with my wife's very significant health issues. And, and, and it's been obviously extremely difficult for her, but quite difficult for me from a, a, a sort of a stress level. And I shared that with my team, you know, as my own experience in saying that it's okay, it's safe, it's, it's fine to, to share your experiences so that together we can help each other and find ways to support each other. And the other thing I do, which, which uh, someone much cleverer than I sort of suggested, is when you ask someone around you, a team member or, a guest or, or a colleague, uh, how are you? The first answer you generally get, certainly in this country, is, oh, I'm fine. But if you ask the question again and say, how are you really? You often get a different answer, a very revealing and insightful answer, and an answer you could try and do something about in supporting that person. So, that, you know, these are the two things I try to do. So share my own journey, uh, of, of, you know, obviously in a... In a uh, productive and, 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 and helpful terms, but also encourage others to share their journey and their travails and their challenges and together find ways to offer support, obviously. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, my thoughts are with your wife and you, and I, I hope that her health improves, um, if it's if that's possible. Um, so, so my thoughts on that one. And the second one, yes, asking someone, how are you really? 
and and just leaving it as as one friend of mine said it's the it's the door handle question that when they've got their hand on the door handle they say how are you go i'm fine or good or whatever it is you get no no how are you really and then just leaving it open for a long time and just looking at them and they will open up i found time and again with yeah. some amazing stories and also the other one is is walking meetings whether it be around a hotel or a venue where people who are listening are at work taking someone for a walking meeting and getting them in perhaps 15 minutes to share their life story of who shaped them what shaped them what uh, crucible moments have shaped their lives and why they work at the place they work and hopefully it's more than to pay my mortgage it's hopefully a bit more around the purpose question um the next question is very relevant for someone with your background experience and the different languages you speak and growing up with that combination of uh, French, Moroccan, um, and then London, what we call uh, CQ, Collaborative, Cognitive and Cultural Intelligence. This idea of getting on with people who are very different from you, uh, reading and understanding people and walking a mile in their shoes. And uh, what would be your top tip about, about helping to understand people from different, uh, completely different backgrounds, different ways of life, orientation, whatever it might be, What's your top tip on this, Ben? I think from my, from my experience, first of all, I'm, I'm lucky in that I've, I've been you know, exposed to many different cultures. I speak a number of languages. I've traveled and lived in different countries. Uh, and so I've had rich experiences about um, understanding different cultures, understanding how people think and behave perhaps in different cultures and, and, and aligning to that requirement in order to communicate and be effective as a leader. But, but, but also what I've learned is that what's important, what's uh, important in business and in life, usually revolve around universal principle. You know, the, these are transcultural and, and don't, uh, don't change from culture to culture. You know, the notion of integrity, the notion of respect, the notion of treating people with dignity and, and the notion of compassion and being interested in people. Uh, I think it was Mother Teresa that said that said uh, you shouldn't judge people because if you judge them you can't love them you know and I always say particularly in my work you have to have an interest in people you have to root for people to be successful you have to enjoy their their, their growth journey uh, for for you to be um, efficient and to be effective as an HR leader or as a business leader even. In fact, I can share an example which has stayed with me for forever. A few years ago, I was in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, visiting one of our hotels in a fairly deprived area of Nairobi. The hotel was not in a very good state. And the general manager was taking me around the hotel, introducing me to all the team members in the different department. And what stayed with me is that this gentleman, Martin, his name was, um, knew every single team member in the hotel. There might have been 200 team members. And he knew something about them personally, about their right. life. How many children they had. He knew the names of some of the children who had a wedding recently or a birth, asked about their partner. He knew something personal. And I knew it was uh, sincere. It wasn't, a, you know, he hadn't read a book before my, before my arrival about all the team members. It's how he was. And I could tell how the, the team members you know, related to him. And it was cross-culture, cross-boundaries, cross any, any uh, prejudice, if you will. You know, he was a white man in a predominantly Black African country. And I could tell all the team members 
loved and respected this band. And he was a very effective leader in a tough environment. Mm. Uh, remember that as a, as, a, as a lesson in relation to the point you or the question you just asked. Uh, mm. No, it really resonates with me. And when I was a company commander, I had about 160 people in my company. And it didn't come as naturally to me as that clearly did to that manager. But I I made a point of having my little black book um, and having a page on each of the 160 people in my company. So I knew football teams and, you know, who'd had a baby and that kind of stuff. And one or two of my uh, soldiers in my headquarters, they, they were sort of very uh, gregarious people and they were often knew that the information going on. So if I was going to go and visit one of the platoons, I'd say, you know, what's happening in that platoon? You know, how are the guys, what's going on? Well, this guy, his brother's just taken a drug overdose and died in Middlesbrough and, 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 and that kind of thing. So you're able to have a really authentic conversation with people um, without the black book, clearly. But the point was, I was genuinely interested. And after after time, it came quite easily because you then, you, at first you were learning it, but then the, the little black book with a photograph of each of them meant that I could go, oh, Donaldson, you know, how's uh, how's how's your football team? I hear they um, they lost yesterday. Oh, well, so, you know, and off they go. It was, it was, a, it was a great topic. It's a bit too ham just to make it about football, but for some of them, they were they were passionate about it. Yeah, well, and, yeah. That's important communication. If you find something there like that's personal to them, that's uh... yeah. Well, that's the point, isn't it? It's not it's not about your needs or what you want. It's about their needs and what matters to them. But in in your various jobs and in your travels around the world, you've needed a lot of the next one, which is RQ resilience quotient. And um, what would be your your top tip about resilience to cope with adversity, Ben? I think we've just been through the the biggest crisis we've ever had in our in our history, you know, um, and, and we've been through a number of recessions. But COVID actually tested us tes- tested our resilience uh, to the limit. I, I think you know it's. I don't know whether you can really um, efficiently train people to be more resilient. I mean, I think you can educate and provide tools and, and all kinds of all kinds of normal sort of HR development and training things. But it's really about sort of a mirroring behavior. You know, if you see someone who can, who stays calm under pressure, who always always seems to have the ability to take the knocks and sort of come back stronger from the knocks, it's kind of learning from these people and maybe reaching out and asking, so how do you deal with it? You know, I'm struggling here. I'm dealing with home crisis and children. I'm dealing with illness and COVID and I'm dealing with having to make people redundant and I'm really struggling. You know, what would you suggest? And they always say that you know you, you have to kind of reflect calmly and objectively try and stay calm and remember you're a leader because you know the requirement from your, the, your, the, your followers or your team members is that you are going to be calm under pressure you are going to be resilient uh, so i don't think that's a good answer to your question but that's certainly my answer yeah and it's made me realize that you and i were discussing before the program started uh, a few days ago, I came back from the Hoffman Institute seven day process, which was looking at, you know, my upbringing, my childhood and patterns of behavior that I have now. And it is very interesting that with boarding school and the army and very tough situations requiring a lot of resilience. I mean, being sent away to boarding school at seven, um, you know, having my father killed when I was two and a half. You learn from the head downwards to not feel things. You could use your intellect 
but don't feel emotions. Certainly at boarding school, don't cry. Uh, don't be a wuss, you know, and um, don't feel. And so just do things. And so there is always a danger that we can become so resilient that it affects our mental health because you keep going for ages and ages and then it all breaks down. Or you're just not in touch with your emotions at all, which makes you quite a difficult person to live with or to work for because they just are so resilient that they go, look, none of that stuff. Um, and I remember um, commanding officer I had when I was working on operations in Northern Ireland and my first wife with our two daughters um, was very unwell. And I really needed to go back and to help her. Uh, but we were on an operational tour and he goes, you know, I'm really disappointed in you. As if it was like my fault that my wife, who was stuck back in in uh, England, was really ill and, and needed me to go and help. You know, why have you made other arrangements? Is it like, what's wrong? And it's like he had no emotions whatsoever. My respect for the man that day died totally. And it has never regained. If I meet the man now, I'm obviously trying to be less judgmental more accepting of him. I'm sure he was doing his best in the circumstance. He was under a lot of pressure. He was trying to prove it. But I think the point to me is that be very careful in judging other people. Be more, as you said, be more accepting, be more understanding of what's going on for them. But I think that resilience is, a, is seen as resilience against adversity is a great thing. But everything you do is possibly prepared to pay the price and live with the consequences. And I think the price of the consequences are sometimes too high. For other people. I don't know what you think, Ben. Oh, I would completely agree. I mean, your notion of resilience and the price to pay will differ, you know, person by person. Uh, but I do relate what you what you just described to examples in my career of people I've met and, and occasionally, you know, perhaps even myself, uh, quite frankly. And and uh, the notion now of focusing on mental wellness and, and showing a bit more vulnerability and encouraging people to share their own their own challenges uh, goes to that you know in a way because you can you can demonstrate resilience in so many different ways and I have to say if I look at my team's performance through COVID you know that everyone elevated their level of resilience and their level of performance to a point where often the beginning of our meetings and my one to ones with them was talking about themselves you know trying to kind of really get a sense of how they truly felt you know so. No, uh, it's, it's, it's a very important part to do that check in, you know, how are you really feeling? Um, the, the last two are brand and then legacy. And then we'll talk about teams, books and uh, your top tip. But um, brand is clearly the Hilton brand is amazing. Your, your own brand is a very strong one. If anybody looks on LinkedIn to, to see you, it's deeply respected from all the experience you've had. Uh, and you're constantly interested in the hotel industry in customer feedback and customer satisfaction, things like that. But um, what have you found that personally, if there was a couple of um, behavior um, patterns that you've learned from 360 on yourself, that you, you're willing to share that you're working on this right now? What, what, are, what are the uh, couple of feedback that you've received from a 360 recently that you're working on, Ben? Well, I, I think, you know, you, you think you've cracked the code on things like like uh, um, uh, not being judgmental, you know, for example. So that, that's a very good one. And I pride myself in exercising, you know, objective and balanced sort of methodology of assessing people's either character or talent or ability. Uh, but, but from time to time, you get challenged. 
But I'll give you an example. I, I, I was this year, we have a senior leader mentoring program, and I was a mentor on that program. And I had a, a, a vice president in a different geography uh, that I was mentoring. And I had a real difficulty understanding how he got on the program. You know, I find his um, contribution to the mentoring debate uh, pretty low level. He displayed lack of ambition. And I, I then questioned, you know, the people that run the program and said, how can someone like that be nominated on the program, which is very judgmental and, and a horrible thing to, to, uh, to admit to. But a little later on, we had a different kind of interaction. And I started to then sort of introspectively look at how I was behaving as a mentor and how I was, how I was uh, delivering a, a valuable service to him. And I concluded that everything that I was judging this person on was actually about me. You know, it was my lack of um, real sort of commitment, perhaps once I determined that he shouldn't have been on the program, I kind of stopped trying to some extent. And it was, it was a very powerful realization, particularly at this stage of my career, to think that I could still fall back in these behaviors that I dislike and even despise, you know. Yeah. And I then went back and said, actually, I, I made a mistake to, to the people organizing the program. He's very worthy. We had a great interaction. And I realized that the way I was handling the, the, men, the mentoring sort of relationship, even though I consider myself a, an excellent mentor, but I wasn't in this, on this occasion. You know, I, I made a judgment error and a mistake, and it was all, all on me. And we went back on track then, and we were having a good, a good time in interacting together. Good and, and lovely humility from you. And, and yes, a lot of time, uh, either it's not at all about us and it's all of some patterns that they're carrying or we're judging someone else and it's all about us. And the fact that we're pointing one finger at them, there's still three pointing back at us, that old saying goes. Um, legacy, um, leaving things better than you found them in the Hilton, uh, in the Hilton world. Uh, what would you like your legacy to be in work and life? Ben, if today was your last day? I always struggle with responding to that question, uh, Jonathan, because genuinely, whatever I would say might sound pretentious, you know, uh, and I, I don't like to be seen to be pretentious or to be judged as being pretentious. Um, I think I'd, I'd but, it, but, you know, in order to answer your question, I have to say something. I think I'd like to, to say that people would um, would remember me as being someone who led from the front, didn't shirk the challenge, uh, was very open and shared uh, his travails through his journey, uh, and tried to be uh, a leader that uh, espouses the, espouses the, value of, the values of Hilton and, and led with purpose and, and with meaning. Mm. I think, uh, I don't know whether that's legacy, but that's how mm. I hope that people would describe me. Yeah, no, I, I think it is. It's lovely thinking uh, of that. And I think that would resonate with me and how people have described you. Um, but it is always a, a interesting looking on your life and how how you're going to leave a legacy. But also part of my thought on the course I recently did with Hoffman was that I can get very serious and very intense. I think often I've been told over life to just just lighten up a bit. So actually, since coming back, my wife and I've been dancing and singing in the kitchen um, I've got my Santa Claus outfit, so I'm going to do Santa Claus for the kids. I'm going to dress up with the old white beard and do my bit. And, and just having more fun, particularly when I come with my daughters to Dubai 
and you know dad and daughters uh, who are there 28 29 we're going to have a ball we have a lot of i don't drink i don't have to drink to have fun but i'm having a lot more fun if you think back to your life and your career tell us of something that's a fun moment or made you laugh or something quite quite light-hearted uh anything come to mind ben oh my goodness uh, what we had that we, I mean, it's something that uh, I, I guess made my children laugh and grandchildren, and 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 I guess you know I laughed uh, probably about a month later. I remember we, we used to live in in Buckinghamshire at the time, and I, we were in the garden on a on a fine sunny day. The whole family was there, and I don't know why, but I decided to take some weeds out of the pond, and I fell fully clothed <laughs> in this little pond, and then I sort of got up. And and a picture of me covered in weeds and covered in all kinds, probably the odd newt, you know, great crested newt. And they took a picture of that and they all giggled. <laughs> my first reaction was, you know, this is terrible. Why are they all laughing? I mean, I'm actually in pain, you know, <laughs> mentally and physically. But actually, I started giggling myself because it was a very funny moment, you know. Yeah. The old man <laughs> falling in the pond. Yeah, so, I, I do love so, that. Yeah, that's that's made my day. Thank you, Ben. So, um, final two or three thoughts. Um, executive teams. You've uh, trained, developed, led lots of executive teams. Um, if there was a top tip for you, taking a, a team that's not performing well, or maybe even gone a bit toxic with one or two individuals, to make it a high-performing team, what's been your your sort of quick tip advice to people who are trying to make that turnaround? I, I think I think in my experience of building effective team, I would say, you know, critical to find a sense of common purpose or a set of common objectives, you know, so to kind of go, go beyond functional excellence to a point where we, we have stretched objectives that we all share, they're the same objectives or our objectives sort of uh, fall into one another to make a bigger whole. Uh, lead with a sense of purpose, whether it's your own or whether it's the purpose of the organization. Um, and it, it's got to give people the sense of a higher purpose beyond doing a good job. You know, so in our, in our, at Hilton, we have lots of materials to help us do that because we do lots of community work and ESG work and uh, a lot of things which are interesting to people in and outside of their job. And I think most of all, be available, uh, and not just physically, but also in the moment, mentally. Uh, espouse the principles of mindfulness, you know, and I think uh, in most of my career, I think I've, uh, even before the word mindfulness became sort of a, a fashionable and a movement, uh, I, I tried, I tried to, to, be, to be in the moment and focus whenever I interacted with my team members. So I think these are the three things that, that would be the most powerful for me. Mm. Oh, great advice. Thank you. I, I like that very much. And then favorite book on leadership? You mentioned one to me. I wonder if it's still the same one, but uh, what would be your favorite book and, and why would you recommend people uh, read it? Or hopefully if it's an order book for me, listen to it because I do love audio books. Yeah, well, I think a book which is both about leadership but also about self-awareness is um, a book by a lady called Rita Clifton who, um, a book is called Love, Your Imposter which uh, resonated, resonated with me on so many levels because I'm like many people, when, I, uh, when I'm self-introspective and look at what I've achieved in my career, I wonder how did I ever get here, you know, uh, from where I came from. Uh, and and that, that book helped me in a very entertaining, sometimes humorous, but very deeply insightful way 
to feel good about myself and not to ask myself those kinds of questions. Uh, so Rita, Rita Clifton, a good book. I think another book I read recently, a lot too recently, but in the last two years was Moonshot. Uh, and and uh, what was good about that book for me, or inspiring about that book is, don't set limits on, on your goals and ambitions and aspirations. You know, you, you can achieve anything you set your mind, your mind to achieve. You may not be able to do it on your own, but if you surround yourself with the right people uh, and sort of uh, commandeer the right resources, you can get there. So. Yeah, two, two really great books, and and um, I'm looking forward to uh, to having listened to. I, I, I'd I'd heard of Moonshot, but love your imposter. I will um, I will be getting that at some stage. Um, finally, um, would you introduce yourself again, Ben, just for those who are going to hear the um, the two minute top leadership tip, and then we'll end on that side. So over to you, Ben. All right, I'm, uh, I'm Ben Ben-Gugam, Senior Vice President Hilton for Europe, Middle East, Africa, 70 countries, 60,000 team members. And I guess my tips on, on, uh, on leadership would be treat people as they want to be treated rather than as you want to be treated. That's a, a fairly recent revelation to me and I'm working on trying to do that. Treat people with respect and dignity. And if you can, treat them with compassion and even love. These are very powerful notions in leadership and will get you the best results. Ben, thank you very much. It's, it's an absolute joy having you on the Inspiring Leadership podcast. And I, I wish you and the Hilton every success and uh, we'll speak in a moment, but thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for the opportunity. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.